Good morning, welcome. We're in Second Samuel chapter 15 this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn there and keep your Bible open. It's a bit of a longer passage again, so we'll be jumping around. Second Samuel 15. I'll read verses 1 to 17 and I'll jump down to verse 30. Uh, if you're jumping in with us, Absalom is King David's son. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David and said, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. Jumping down to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the mountain of olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and his dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their sons are with them, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we pray again that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts 
would be acceptable in your sight as we hear and respond to your word this morning. For we trust you this morning as our rock and our redeemer, uh, looking to you for stability in the midst of a world that's changing. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I, that I hear consistently uh, from some people in our church is a deep concern, uh, even a deep fear, over how much our society has changed in the last few decades, uh, over how much influence the Bible and the church now seem to have on our society. I share many of the same concerns. Now, are things as bad for us today as they could be? No. Not even close. Uh, Are things as bad for Christians in America as they are in many, many places in the world? No. Things are much worse for many, many Christians all over the world. But I think you just about have to have your head buried in the sand to not notice that it has become significantly harder and costlier to be a Bible-believing Christian in the secular West. Uh, Maybe some of you are here today. uh, You aren't sure about all this Christianity stuff. Maybe you're kind of skeptical of it. Uh, Maybe you wonder if what I've been telling uh, everyone just now is actually a good thing. Maybe that's a sign of progress. Uh, But maybe even you look around at the moral and the relational chaos around us, uh, the failed promises of the sexual revolution, Uh, And you are maybe wondering yourself if this is the kind of progress that we were promised. One of my favorite writers on Christianity and culture, uh, especially writing on Christianity and men, uh, is this guy named Aaron Wren. Uh, He's written what I think is a pretty helpful framework for how to understand the last few decades of secularization in America. He calls it the three worlds. Uh, He says up until the mid-90s, basically he says we're living in what's called the positive world. Uh, And then he said from the mid-90s to the mid-2010s, we're living in what he calls the neutral world. Uh, But he says now since the mid-2010s, he says that in general, quote, being known as a Christian is now a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Unlike before when Christian morality was affirmed up until the 90s, and then merely tolerated up until the 2010s. Now, he says, Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Life in the negative world. In our passage today, we see King David and his kingdom living in their own kind of negative world, uh, largely as a consequence of his own sin and spiritual apathy. King David's kingdom is in freefall. With the rise of his glamorous and gloating son Absalom, David's best days are very far in the rearview mirror. Everything around him seems to be an embarrassing failure. In many ways, it is yet another sad story in 2 Samuel about David and his kingdom. We're getting used to that. But we're meant to be encouraged by what's actually going on here. We're meant to be encouraged because failure is not the end of the story for David. Uh, You are actually, in this chapter, for the first time in a long time, starting to get glimpses that some things are actually better for David 
Some things are better for his kingdom than they've been in a long time. What if living in the negative world is actually an opportunity for God's people to grow and even to shine? For the last few chapters, we've seen this flailing and sinful David mainly in contrast to his greater son, Jesus. We've been mainly seeing the ways that Jesus and David were not like each other. But here, we're once again starting to see David more in parallel with Jesus. The ways that he's like Jesus. The ways that he helps us understand who Jesus was. Uh, The ways that David we're starting to see is living in parallel with his son, Jesus, even though David and his kingdom are suffering so much. And even though they appear to be such failures. Being in the negative world does not mean that David is ultimately failing. For we're going to see that Jesus himself spent nearly his entire time on earth in his own and much darker negative world. And so as you see the suffering Christ in his suffering ancestor David, you should actually be encouraged today as you and we seek to deepen our roots so that we can continue to grow and mature in the midst of the spiritual and moral drought of modern America. But before you get to David's apparent failure and what that has to teach us, the text wants us to see the apparent success of his son Absalom. If we're going to be encouraged in the midst of this world, we not only need to see the true nature of God's king, we also need to see the true nature of the world's king. Look at his glory first. Look at Absalom's glory. Uh, Back at the top of chapter 15, verse 1, you hear that he gets himself a chariot and horses with 50 men to run alongside him every morning. Uh, This is something like our presidential motorcade, uh, complete with this security detail of macho dudes running around with him. Absalom is not exactly being subtle. He is purposefully projecting this image of political strength. Uh, We were already told last week that Absalom is the most handsome man in Israel. There is no flaws in him physically. Uh, We were even told that he had this incredible hair. It weighed so much. And the only reason you know that it weighed so much is because he was vain enough to weigh it. Uh, Every year he cuts it and it weighs a few pounds. And so you can imagine him now in this chariot every morning with his hair just flying behind him, really (laughs) macho and strong. It's quite a spectacle. And that's the whole point of it. Then and now... People are easily swayed by this kind of thing. Uh, Look also, not just at his glory, but also at his appeal. You hear that every day he takes his parade uh, to go stand outside the gate, which for them was like their courtroom. Uh, Israel had a whole system of judges and courts all throughout the land. Uh, The Jerusalem court, where Absalom is setting up shop every morning, is the one that's presided over by King David. Uh, The Jerusalem court is like their supreme court. This is the final court of appeals. And so you have hunky Absalom with his chariot and security guards gleaming there in the background is catching people before they get into David's chambers. Uh, He asks them, hey, what are you doing here? Tell me about your story. Pour out your woes for me for a second. Verse 3, you hear that whoever it was and whatever the merits of their case, Absalom would always say the same thing to them. He would say, your claims are good and right. There's no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man would come to me and I would give him justice. And so you can see Absalom here sowing the seeds of discontentment 
sowing the seeds of dismay, sowing the seeds of envy in his father's kingdom. He's feeding the people's sense of injustice, whether they were right or wrong. He's offering himself as their only solution. Uh, If you're a student of history, you know that this is the oldest trick in the book. This works really well. Most people fall for this kind of thing very easily. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, they all came promising justice. And people ate it up. But Absalom is not only appealing because he talks so loftily about justice and about security, but also because he's so down to earth. He's a man of the people. Now look at verse 5. Uh, you hear that when people come before him and they start to bow down before him, which is what they're used to with royalty, uh, he actually stops them. He doesn't let them bow before him. Uh, he says, uh, no, come here. He, we read that he pulls them up, he gives them a big hug, and then he gives them a kiss like he's their brother. Uh, you can see the same thing today, of course. We might be kind of used to it because we're so used to democracy. But, of course, uh, we have all these elite people ruling over us that like to pretend like they're just one of us. And so, because he's so appealing with all this talk of justice and brotherhood, after a few years, he becomes immensely popular. If they were to have an election at this point, Absalom would win in a landslide. But popularity is not the same thing as integrity or legitimacy. In verse 6, you hear that he is stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. And in verse 12, once he's fully launched his coup, you hear that the people with him keep increasing. You have this hockey stick chart of the number of people who love Absalom and want to do whatever he says and make him their king. He's turning the kingdom of Israel against its true God, or against its true king and God's anointed. So you have this worldly king who's glorious and appealing, but we also read that he's pious. In verse 7, Absalom launches his mutiny under the pretext of heading out of town for a little while for a worship service. On the outside, something that is actually immensely evil can look perfectly moral and spiritual. And then finally, we see that the apparently successful Absalom uh, can point not only to his splendor and his popularity and to his piety, but also to his experts. In verse 12, you hear that he wins over the greatest member of David's cabinet, this guy named Ahithophel. When David later hears that Ahithophel has gone over to the other side, he's totally devastated because Ahithophel was so important and so skillful. And so something like our own secular world, Absalom seems to have it all together. He seems to have all the wind in his sails. He's powerful. He's popular. Most of God's people are being taken in by his promises and his piety. He even has elites and institutions on his side. Everything seems to be working for him. He seems so successful. And you should be sobered by the outward success of Absalom, just like you should be sobered by the outward success of this world in all of its rejection of God and of his word. But we know that this cannot be it for David. Uh, we might remember that back in Second Samuel chapter 7, God promised David an eternal kingdom. We've already seen that Absalom is a villain and a serpent. And so you not only can, but you should cry out with the big Lebowski that this aggression will not stand, man. Because it's not the end of the story. 
you should not only see the true nature of the world's king as he seems to be succeeding, but you also need to see the true nature of God's king even as he seems to be failing. David hears in verse 13 about Absalom's revolt and he immediately retreats. Uh, That looks like a pretty weak move, perhaps. Uh, Beta male right here. David takes himself off into exile into the darkness of the east, just like Adam and Eve did when they left the garden, just like the nation of Israel was going to do one day when they were exiled to the east to Babylon. In the Bible, going east is always a bad thing. David is an old man now, but he's actually still a brilliant tactician. He flees the city to spare it from the misery of Absalom coming, immensely popular Absalom, and laying siege to it. There's times when it's wise to retreat, even though it looks weak. There's times when it's wise to regroup and to rebuild. You don't have to fight every battle. You don't have to die on every hill. David's actually being wise here, even though it means that he's accepting a kind of defeat. And it is a kind of defeat. The text wants you to see the sorrow of David. Over and over again, it focuses us in on how sad he is. In verse 30, you hear that he is ascending the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of Jerusalem, uh, once you go across the valley there. He's weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. It's a painful and even a pathetic scene. David is stumbling away from his royal city. He's stumbling away from God's special presence there on the Ark of the Covenant, and he does not look or act like a king. He's just shuffling along barefoot. As he's going up the hill, he's just weeping and weeping and weeping, facing the terrible consequences of his own sin. God had promised him when he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. God promised him, the sword will never leave your house. There's going to be misery to come because of your sin, even though I forgive it. It's eerily similar to how David's descendant Jesus would one day be weeping as he came down this very same hill. Jesus came down the Mount of Olives on his way into Jerusalem to be crucified, uh, weeping not over the consequences of his own sin. He didn't have any sin to weep over. But he was weeping instead over the impending consequences of Israel's sin. Jesus knew what it was going to mean for them once they crucified him. But in David's sorrow and in David's retreat, our passage especially focuses for us on David's relationships. It shows us this whole cast of characters, all these different people interacting with him. Uh, We get to see all the different ways that people respond to God's king and God's kingdom when the king and kingdom are marked by weakness and suffering. A whole range of ways that people respond. Uh, First of all, uh, we need to see that David still has friends. And that's very encouraging. You hear in verse 17 that some of the people remain loyal to David. They wander off with him into exile. But then in verse 19, you meet somebody surprising. Uh, You have this soldier named Ittai. We hear that he is a Gittite, which means that he's a Philistine, uh, which if you've been following the story of the Old Testament, you know that means that that's about as far of an outsider as you can get. So you have this Philistine soldier uh, who has recently entered David's service, and he says, I'm coming with you. I want to come. Uh, David says, what are you doing? Uh, this, is, this is bad stuff. You don't want to come with me. You're new here. Don't do it. 
But the guy says, no, I really want to come with you. He vows to David uh, that he will go with him into the void. He says, whether for death or for life, there will your servant be. Uh, In a way, he's a beautiful little picture of how the nations would stream into Jesus' church once he had ascended into heaven. Uh, It's a picture about how all of us should remain loyal to Jesus and to his church, even in the darkness, no matter how much it costs us, uh, no matter how little we know about the future. In verse 24, you also see some other friends. You see that the priests are still loyal to David. They want to come with him. They want to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. But David is not going to use the Ark like a lucky charm, the way that Israel had, the way that King Saul had. Instead, he enlists the priests to remain in Absalom's kingdom. He says, I want you to covertly work on my behalf to undermine and to counteract the evil of my son Absalom. In verse 32, In a similar way, he enlists his friend and his counselor, Hushai, as a kind of secret agent to work against the evil plans of the defector, Ahithophel. Uh, It's perhaps a little picture and a reminder that God does not just take his people out of the world once he saves them. Uh, He does not encourage us to go off and just live in a bubble, sealed off from everything, but that he calls us as his church to live in the world, to be a light in the darkness, to be salt in the world, to work for his kingdom, to work against Satan's kingdom. David has friends, but you also see here that David has frenemies. David has frenemies. In chapter 16, you hear again about this guy named Ziba. He was the servant that David had commissioned to take care of the household of Saul's disabled grandson, if you remember that story from a month or so ago. Uh, David's, uh, you know, his newly kind of adopted uh, foster grandson is this guy named Mephibosheth. He's disabled in his feet. He can't walk, and so therefore he can't work. Ziba was supposed to take care of him. But now as David is leaving Jerusalem, this guy Ziba appears all of a sudden. He has all kinds of provisions. He has donkeys and food and wine. Uh, He says, oh, here you go, David. Uh, I brought all this for you. And David says, what's this all about? Ziba says, well, I, I brought this for you. I'm doing this just out of the goodness of my heart because Mephibosheth has actually thrown in his lot with Absalom. David doesn't know any better, and so he quickly gives all the property over to Ziba. But ominously, uh, this is how you start to see that something's not quite right. Ziba uh, does not go with David. He says, oh, thank you very much for all this new stuff, and he heads right back to go enjoy it all. Uh, You're going to find out later that Ziba is lying about everything that he's just said, uh, that Mephibosheth actually remained loyal to David this entire time. And so what you have going on here is something like what happened with Judas Iscariot, with Jesus. Uh, where you have Ziba pretending to be David's friend. Uh, On the surface, he's offering help, he's offering encouragement, but in reality, he's doing it for his own benefit. He's a frenemy. It's an indictment of all those who would cozy up to Jesus and to his church and to his people for their own selfish or greedy purposes. Not everybody who claims to love Jesus or to speak in his name actually does. Uh, So you move from friends to frenemies, but then just regular old enemies. Chapter 16, verse 5, you have this guy named Shimei. He's related to Saul. Saul was the last king. Uh, He's been sorely disgruntled about how David took over the kingdom from Saul. And so he comes out now when David is at his lowest, and he starts throwing dirt and rocks and mud at David as he's walking out of town. Uh, He's cursing David. He's mocking him. He's saying that this is your fault. You're getting what God... uh, owes you because of what you did to Saul. You're a man of blood. You killed all those people around Saul. This is all your fault. Now, it's true. David is guilty of bloodshed. He did kill Bathsheba's husband, and David is very well aware of that. 
But as you saw through First and Second Samuel, David is actually totally innocent of any wrongdoing around Saul's downfall. And so the charges that are coming from this guy as he's throwing rocks are largely false. But David does not talk back. David does not defend himself. David does not allow him to be punished. And so it takes us from the relationships of God's apparently failing king now to the other thing that this passage really wants us to see. It wants us to see the submission of God's apparently failing king. David knows that he's suffering the consequences of his own sin. But that does not mean that David turns away from God uh, in despair or in bitterness. Uh, It does not mean that David gives up on any hope of God's mercy or God's love or God's forgiveness. What you're seeing, you're seeing something amazing. You're seeing that David, in the midst of his own suffering because of his own sin, you're seeing him continue to trust in the Lord, even in the midst of all the suffering and all the failure. You're starting to see David shining again after years and years of him being morally and spiritually adrift. Uh, Earlier on, uh, in chapter 15, when this Philistine Ittai comes to him and says, hey, I want to come with you, we heard David pronouncing, we haven't heard David talk like this in a long time. You heard David pronouncing God's covenant love and faithfulness upon him. David, for the first time in a long time, is becoming attuned to God. He's kind of had God tuned out for quite a while. But David is starting to track with him again. And then when the priests ask about bringing the ark with them, David tells them to leave it in Jerusalem. And he says this in verse 25. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. He'll let me see the ark and its dwelling place. Otherwise, let God do to me what seems good to him. And so you hear that David says, I'm not going to try to manipulate God by bringing out this special piece of furniture like it's something magical. But at the same time, David's not giving up on God. He knows that he's suffering for his sin, but he also knows that God's a God of mercy. He knows that the Lord may very well decide to show him undeserved grace by restoring him to the throne. But in any case, David says, I'm willing to accept the Lord's discipline. David's not rejecting God. He's not turning his back on him. He says, here I am, Lord. Do whatever is good and right in your eyes, no matter how much it costs me. That's faith. It's trust. He's growing deeper with the Lord. You see the same thing when he's being cursed by that guy Shimei on his way out of town. Uh, one of David's hot-headed soldiers says, why don't I just go over there and slice his head off? David says, don't do that. Verse 10, if he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me good for his cursing. So David knows he deserves at least some of the blame for what's happening to him, even if Shimei is wrong to blame him for everything that happened to Saul. But at the same time, David trusts that the Lord sees his pain. He trusts that the Lord sees his sin. He trusts that the Lord sees the injustice being done to him. And he knows God is a God of mercy and kindness. He could very well help me, even though I don't deserve it. God's king is submitting to the yoke of God's plan, as painful as it is for him. If you keep reading in the story, you're going to see David restored. There is something, sort of, of a happy ending in Second Samuel. And in the same way, and in a better way, Jesus, God's true and final king, submitted to the yoke of God's plan, uh, the most painful one of all, 
the cross. Where Jesus suffered not for his own sin, like David was, but where God's king suffered for your sin. On the other side of David's exile, he's going to have a homecoming. And on the other side of Jesus' cross, there was a resurrection. And so if you're here today as a skeptic of Christianity, you need to know that the resurrection of Jesus is the reason why you must take him seriously, no matter how foolish or weak he appears to you today. In the midst of their suffering, Jesus' followers are living in and by the power of Jesus' resurrection. We know that Jesus is wisely and sovereignly overseeing our suffering in the world. We know that there's going to be a homecoming and a restoration and a resurrection for us too. But at the same time, we too are still facing the darkness and the pain and the false accusations of a world that is rebelling against God's king and kingdom. Even as it appears to be successful with all of its power and its popularity. But even so, in the power of Jesus' resurrection, be encouraged. Be encouraged today. King Jesus has triumphed, and he's going to triumph. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great and harmonious resolution that's coming at the end of this world as we know it. All the disharmony, all of the chaos, all of the destruction. We look around and we tremble at it. We wonder if you're losing. We wonder if you've forgotten or you've given up on us. But we trust that you see it all, you rule over it all, you see the Absaloms of this world, and you laugh. Give us, too, the joy and the confidence that we need to live faithfully as your people, to be light in this world of darkness, even as we continue to wrestle with our sin. Help us to be like David, seeking your mercy and your pardon, knowing that we don't deserve it, but knowing even more that you are a God of love. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.